Hello and welcome to another episode of the Sports Travel Podcast, where we interview leaders from throughout the sports event industry. This is Matt Traub, Managing Editor of Sports Travel, and our guest today is Brent Nowicki, Executive Director of World Aquatics. But before we begin, first a word from our sponsor. This episode of the Sports Travel Podcast is being sponsored by the Teens Conference and Expo, the world's largest gathering of sports event organizers and the destinations and suppliers that serve the sport event industry. Teams 23 will be held in the Palm Beaches, Florida, from October 2nd through the 5th, 2023. The conference will again feature the co-location of the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic SportsLink program and NGB Best Practices Seminar, as well as the annual symposium of the National Congress of State Games. For more details on everything planned at Teams, please visit teamsconference.com. And now, on to the conversation. One of the biggest sports in each Summer Olympic Games is swimming, which has been part of the program since 1896. But what casual fans may not realize is that the sport's international governing body, World Aquatics, also oversees water polo, diving, artistic swimming, open water swimming, and high diving from throughout the world. The International Federation has been around for decades, but recently underwent a dramatic rebranding from FINA to World Aquatics. One of the leaders of the Federation is American Brett Nowicki, who has been Executive Director at World Aquatics since June 2021, after spending more than eight years at the Court of Arbitration for Sport. We talked with Nowicki recently about the organization's rebranding, the international scene, especially in a time of turmoil in the Ukraine, the importance of the U.S. market five years out from LA-28, and how growing up in Buffalo, New York has shaped his work ethic now as an international sports executive in Switzerland. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Brent Nowicki, welcome to the Sports Travel Podcast. Matt, thank you for having me on. It's great to see, great to see you and hear from you. World Aquatics recently underwent a full rebranding that changed its name from FINA, which it had been known as for decades. Why rebrand now? And how long was the process in coming up with a new style? Um, look, both, both, both good questions. The, the why is, is maybe more interesting. You know, FINA was a name that that certainly served us well. 1908, it, it got us on the map and, and certainly has has put us at the forefront of Olympic sport and international sport for that. There was a few problems that I think we needed to address and perhaps should have addressed maybe maybe much sooner than we did. Um, the first was the name FINA, uh, an acronym derived from Federation Natation Amateur or a French word meaning basically the Swimming Amateur Swimming Federation. As we all know, swimming has evolved. It's it's not really an amateur sport per se anymore. Um, many of our swimmers, full-time professionals, cer- certainly uh, we've the, the Federation itself has evolved also beyond swimming, representing diving and high diving and artistic swimming and open water swimming and, of course, water polo. So the, the breadth and depth of the Federation over the years since 1908 has expanded dramatically, but yet we were still retaining the roots of the name, which only reflected the organization of the Federation at the time of its inception uh, in the sport that they govern at the time being only swimming. So um, there's been a strong push with a a mindset of of community by President Hussein al-Muslim when taking office. And so part of that was really a look at the way we we represented our community, ensuring that everybody had a voice, and we felt it uh, sort of the, the name on the door didn't really reflect what was inside the house when you walked in, 
And we wanted to change that to ensure that everybody that was in our community had a voice that was reflective in the identity and the branding of the company itself or the federation itself, which represented the community. And so that was uh, something that we had looked at uh, quite significantly as to how uh, we could do that within the confines of the name FINA and whether that was possible to maintain or whether we had to look outside the box and say, it's time to, to respect the past, but look into the future. And, and we did that. And, and that was sort of the why. Now, the timing of it was was also interesting because when president took office on the 5th of June, 2001, uh, he went through a series of reforms along with the reform committee and the members of the of the aquatics community to really examine every aspect of business that we conducted here. And one of those was the name and imaging of the company and what I say, keep saying company, I probably should say more like federation, but in essence, the same thing. So looking, looking at everything we do, and that started when he took office on the 5th of June. The reform process, though, took a little bit longer. So um, it wasn't until, I believe, October of that year that the first reform report was out where it was sort of pen to paper that we needed to do this. Of course, all the while, the president gaining support from the membership to do and examine this. Uh, we then retained a, a company, the Martin Group, out of the U.S. to help guide us down that road. We we met and, and worked with the Martin Group for almost nine months uh, until just this December when we were able to reveal the new name and the new branding of company identity. Now, everything that's happened in between, I don't want to be presumptuous in your questioning, but everything everything from that point from from the why to the when um and how long is is another is another story well that was what i was going to uh, one of the things i was going to follow up on is what has the response been to a new brand whether from athletes national federations and sponsors and with any of those groups were they were they looped into the rebranding and given the chance for feedback were they taken along for on this journey with you yes and that I believe is why it's been as successful as it has been. It's been a very, very collaborative process. We had a multitude of focus groups uh, and work groups that helped us not only in the naming side, but the rebranding side. On the naming side, you know, you, you start to look at the landscape of federations and the movement and pick, pick apart the, the verbiage that's used to define them, whether it's a federation, association, a union, whether it's world, whether it's international, whether it's global. And you start to piece those words together in different formations as it concerns water sports. And we look at aquatics, we look at water, and we play with these words. And so you have sort of a, a board of different varying words, and you kind of drawing lines between them to see whether it should fit or doesn't fit. And then you've got the assistance of experts who can say, well, it should be two words, not three. How will it look on, you know, uh, an article of clothing? How will it look on an email? How will it look on a website? And so you kind of really kind of get a feel of what you want it to look like and feel like. And you do that with collaborations with not only experts, but the people who are ultimately going to use the name. Does that name reflect what you want it to be? Again, it's, it's to your earlier question. And my answer was, you know, does the name on the door reflect what's inside the house? And so we wanted to make sure that that was the case. So ultimately, whatever we picked reflected what was in the house. And I think from the name side, you could say, well, gosh, that wasn't really original, Brent. You know, World Aquatics, it's like everything else, World Archery, World world Athletics. And I think at the end of the day, what the exercise told me was I wasn't paying a team of experts to tell me what name I should use. 
I was paying a team of experts to tell me what name I shouldn't use because we could have gotten very creative and we could have tried to go outside the box. But, you know, at the end of the day, we didn't need to. We were already making a big shift from where we started in 1908. So ultimately where we end up was a bit of a safer play, but it was the right play. And we knew that because we went through the exercise of not picking the wrong names and and testing out some other names, which we would have thought to be wrong names. And so it was, again, a very collaborative process where we engaged our officials. We we engaged our fans. We engaged uh, our national federations. We engaged our board members. We engaged our staff. We engaged virtually everybody we could possibly engage. In fact, to my understanding, it's the largest single survey ever conducted by this organization in its history with the volume of people that we've reached out to and engaged both on the name side and the brand side. And the brand side, you know, taking on a different but similar approach where we had focus groups and again, engaging, showing different modeling, you know, trying to, you know, explore different concepts and ideas and waves and waters and dives and movements to reflect the community that we are. It's challenging, but it, it makes the it makes the acceptance by the community much more. I don't know. It makes it just much more positive experience if you've engaged them from the start. And because we've done that, the 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 communities opened it with 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 quite broad arms. What part of the rebranding when you started it? By the time it finished, did you think? Well, I never imagined it was going to be like as as long or as hard as that. Because you're talking, you know, World Aquatics. You can you mentioned you know you you can do you can do a logo and you can change your email signature, but you're also an international federation that puts on events all over the world. There's signage, there's signage on your building that has to be replaced and rebranded. And, you know, there there's what are some during this process? What was the what were things where you were like, I never imagined, or you know, this was this was even bigger than we than we imagined at the beginning. This this task. Um, I mean, I think we were pretty well prepared for the 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 rollout. I mean, I, we we all knew very well that this wouldn't be a, a light switch. You know, we we have sort of a nine month calendar of rollout. I mean, the door, the, the placards on our door still say FINA. Part of that was because we were running up to the launch, still deciding and finalizing color schemes and really tweaking it to the very last minute of the launch because you know that was just sort of the timing of where we were. But but we knew it would be a nine month process from start to finish before we could integrate a new website. We could integrate you know names and placards and uh, and everything else from apparel. So we knew we knew that none none of that's caused me a big surprise. But I do think the one thing that has been the most pleasant surprise uh, of all is that we really we really did something unique in that we have attributed two hundred and nine variations of our logo. So that each one of our member federations has their own color-coded version of our logo based on their flag. We designed 209 versions of our logo. And we've given one to each of the national federations so that they feel a part of our federation. And that has been taken on so warmly and, and, and been so well received that we can't, we, we, we haven't thought far enough down the road as to how to implement this. I mean, we kind of just thought, oh, well, they'll use it. Perhaps they'll put it on their letterhead or perhaps they'll use it on their website. And we didn't really think it would be rolled out. But now we're at the point where national federations want to adopt it as their primary logo, their primary mark. Um, you know, content organizations said, well, now we want one. You know, and so this this has been a really warm surprise for us that we've embraced, but we just haven't really been, been prepared 
to address 209 countries' desires to adopt our mark. And it wasn't really it wasn't really fit within the nine month time frame as to figure out how to how to uh, how to accommodate 209 federations separately on this request. So we're working through that, making sure our branding guidelines are up to date with respect to their usage of that individualized logo for them, and ensuring proper usage and and, and registrations and things of that nature. But um, but we'll get there. You know, they're still excited about it, and they're still using it. And uh, we're finding different ways in which we can use it at our congresses and different international scoped events that we do, where we can incorporate their colors onto our logo. And yeah, it's been a fun process. Uh, certainly, one that we didn't expect to have so much fanfare on was the individualized use of the logos. You mentioned that you guys oversee six separate disciplines, and when you host the World Championships, you have all of those events going on. Looking broadly in terms of participation among your uh, all of your affiliated organizations what are disciplines of swimming and water sports are on the upswing and are there any that may be on the downswing in terms of youth participation and interest look i think it's a tough question to answer because you got to look at it globally and in some markets you're going to always have a constant and in some markets you're going to always have you're going to have increases and then some markets you're going to have decreases so it's it's kind of hard to holistically say well for example, uh, water polo is on the downswing because it's it's it may be on the upswing someplace else. I think I think frankly speaking, the one the one discipline that that's probably the most undertapped is artistic swimming. You know, the beauty of the sport in uh, the movements of the sport combined with the athleticism of the sport are really unparalleled. It's something that we have to do a better job of getting to market. It's a beautiful sport. It's an elegant sport. It's a romantic sport. And it shares a class of its own at the elite level because there really isn't many other sports like that that share those characteristics. Athleticism, beauty, and glamour. And I know that there's rule change recently made where men can compete at the Olympic level for that now. And that that, that how much of a game changer is that for you as, as an international federation part? It is. I mean, we've let we've allowed men to compete in our events in the world championship level. So for us, it's not terribly new. Of course, when you get to the Olympic side now and men can compete, it becomes a different dynamic for national federations. And so it's a big change for national federations to now obviously develop the men's side of the sport, but also to elevate the presence at the Olympic because now they've got a new a whole new gender of individuals, you know, who can support their 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 plights for for medals. So it's it's really a big deal for the national federations. But I would say, you know, generally speaking, because of that and other reasons, artistic is an area that, you know, I, I would say, you know, warrants, you know, warrants a lot more time and investment from us, but certainly is one that's getting a lot more traction. We just saw the United States in the Super Bowl. Artistic swimming was featured as a, as a halftime show um, for a hair care product. You know, that that's a nice little piece for us. And I know they'll be soon coming up with a, uh, I, I believe it's a Netflix series involving artistic swimming. Um, and so that's going to be a nice little, a nice little piece as well for that. You know, I think water polo is, is a mainstay in Europe, but I think it, it needs improvement. It needs enhancements. It's very much, it's very much the old sort of the old style of the sport, which needs progression. It needs enhancements on the sport presentation side. It needs new and exciting cities to bring life to it. It needs new timeframes, uh, a broadcast to bring energy and life from people at home to watch online or, you know, from their sofa. So I think that's a great team sport that needs some finessing and movement, but it certainly has a lot of potential and growth opportunities there um, as well. High diving is another thing. I mean, high diving is a really interesting, you know, making a, making a strong push to be in the Olympic Games. 
and uh, certainly brings a high sense of thrill and excitement uh, to any city when it when it comes to town. So, you know, again, a huge upside there on the high diving, but needs the development, the grassroots grassroots growth. So I think that's an area where you'll see some continued improvement now, especially in Fort Lauderdale with the development center there that they build in the permanent high dive structure. I think that's going to get a lot of people interested in the high dive movement and then least in the United States. Um, you'll see, I think, a lot of growth of, 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 of young athletes starting to get to that higher level of diving platform. Last week, Singapore was named host of the World Championships in 2025. It was an event originally scheduled to be in Russia. World Aquatics had to move last year's World Short Coast Championships to Melbourne and out of Russia. What type of scramble or other word have international federations needed to undergo when dealing with events that were scheduled to be in Russia, given the IOC directives? I mean, look... I, I I think for better or worse, I think what 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 2020 to 2022 have taught us is that we need to be able to to pivot um, in, in federations who haven't been able to pivot because of because of drastic changes as a result of covid have, have probably found themselves on the short string of, of progression over the last couple of years. We've been able to pivot off of events because of cancellations for a variety of reasons, and we've done it successfully. You know, we've been nimble and able and experienced enough to be able to put on world championships in four months in Budapest. Um, you know, we've been nimble and able to reschedule a series, a number of our world champion, our world cup events over those two year periods to keep our athletes competing. You scramble, I get it, but I don't think we've had to scramble because I think in some respects we had built up the, the ability to pivot in the, in the light of, uh, you know, turmoil beyond our control, the war broke out and decisions needed to be taken. It was almost like we had been already prepared for things of this nature because we had been doing it already for two years. So our approach really didn't change much. Of course, the circumstances of the approach did. We were talking about a war, not necessarily a pandemic, but the ability to move on our feet, you know, be able to shift and pivot quickly away from an event and into a new event and find a great host to have a fabulous event was something that for better or worse, we were used to doing. In fact, I mean, the president of Dubai have only been in office since the 5th of June. And I feel like everything we've done has been off of a pivot in, in, in a short time frame. So frankly speaking, I think the question is probably better served for me in about a year or two time when I'll have actually time to prepare for an event. You're going to ask me what it's like to have time to prepare for an event. As opposed to having no time to prepare for an event, because all I know is having no time. Obviously, 2024 Summer Olympics in Paris, it's one it's the biggest event, one of the biggest events in the sports world. But obviously, there's decisions that have to be made on Russian and Belarusian athlete and athletes and their eligibility. How is World Aquatics working through that? In determining when they'll when they will make a decision, when how, what IOC directives and guidance will come, what other IFs may be doing or not doing, because that's something that is could change day by day by day, but it also affects something that is going to be more than a year from now. No, look, we're obviously very cognizant, and we're cognizant of of the impact it has both on Russian and Belarusian athletes. We're cognizant on, on how it impacts. Ukrainian athletes were cognizant on how it impacts all 209 federations and the athletes and the federations and the, and the governments that support them. Uh, none of this falls on a blind eye. We've been quite clear from the beginning um, in our approach 
and we you know we haven't moved from it we continue to follow the situation closely we continue to stay in close contact with the IOC we do have regular routine communications with them um we are following their lead on this and we'll continue to do that i don't anticipate a decision to be made tomorrow but i think when and if a decision is made we'll certainly be very clear and transparent about it uh, in the meantime we're we're following the IOC's uh you know, plan, and uh, we'll continue to work closely with other international federations who are similarly situated, and ensure that our position, you know, again, is clear uh, in 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 unwaverable. And in, in again, I can appreciate that decisions that we take don't always sit well with one side or the other, and and that's the way it is. But um, but we want to make the decision right. We want to we want to make sure it's clear, and we want to make sure that athletes know. Uh, if and when they're going to compete and how they're going to compete. And, and we'll do it as fast as we possibly can. But right now we don't have a decision to take and uh, we haven't um, and haven't taken one anything different than we've already taken. After next summer's Olympic Games is LA 28. What is the importance of the market commercially in the U.S. Uh, for World Aquatics, especially given how competitively the U.S. has always been one of, if not the strongest countries in international swimming? I think just generally speaking, the U.S. is an important market for us. You know, we, we, we entered the U.S. market, uh, this year, the Swing World Cup, and it was a, it was a huge smash. It was a great success for us. Um, we, we understand the modeling is different in the United States than it is perhaps in, in other parts of Europe or in Asia. Um, we get that and we get that the, the financial structures and, and the contributions and the approaches are, are, are wildly different in the U.S. market. Um, but you're right. I mean, they, they are a, you know, they are, a, let's just call them a leader. They are a, a top aquatics nation. So it's vitally important that we, 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 we compete there. Um, not, not necessarily to support the American athletes, but the rest of the world is eager to go there. Um, some of the greatest interest we have in participating in the U.S. market doesn't come from the U.S. athletes, but it comes from the, the, the Europeans who want to go to the U.S. and train and travel and, and, and compete. It comes from the Africans who want to train and travel and compete in the United States. It comes from the Asians and comes from the Australians. So I think universally, it's a very kind of, uh, accepted place, a destination, uh, for athletes to go and compete in. And we want to, we want to be able to, to meet their desires. So again, I don't think it has a lot to do with LA 28. It just has to do with the fact that it's a, it's a desirable, Aquatics Nation. It's got great facilities. Uh, it's got you know great training opportunities. It's got great travel opportunities. And so when you're when you're talking about bringing in a couple thousand athletes and their entourages and teams, it becomes extremely exciting for everybody to to be able to to get there. So huge. It's a huge. It's a huge market for us that we're just starting to to get some inroads in. Uh, and we hope to continue to do that, especially again, as I mentioned earlier, the world uh, the Fort Lauderdale complex, which, you know, it, it presents a great opportunity for the world to to really get into Fort Lauderdale and to, to really be able to do any kind of elite aquatics discipline in one venue. The 2024 U.S. Olympic swimming trials will be held at Lucas Oil Stadium, an NFL venue in Indianapolis. Depending on how the success of that event comes off, would that... What is World Aquatics' current thoughts on you know that being maybe a model down the line for whether having events in the U.S. or having events internationally at non-traditional venues? 
Yeah, I mean, this may come as a surprise to you, but certainly not a surprise to me. But the majority of our championship venues are no are not held in fixed pools. So the majority of our championship venues are actually temporary builds. We've got a great par- partner in Mirtha Pools, uh, who is likely the world leader in uh, elite and recreational pool builds. Um, they've they've designed and developed the the pools. I think since. Well, the last number of games, don't quote me on it, maybe since Atlanta, I don't know, but it's been certainly for the last many editions of the Olympic Games, Mirtha pools have been the pools that have been swum in by the athletes at the Olympic Games. And many of those pools are temporary builds. We uh, we conduct many of our events in temporary pool builds in football stadiums throughout the world. Um, we Let's just, I'm just trying to think quickly where was... You know, I think that the world championships in Kazan, the last one in Kazan was done in the football stadium there. Um, We saw obviously Lucas Oil will be one. Paris Olympic Games will be a temporary build. That's going to inside the rugby stadium within Paris. And that'll be a a rugby stadium conversion into a uh, a 50 meter Olympic swimming pool. So we will see that. Um, Singapore. Singapore will be held in the national stadium in 2025. Uh, and that will be a complete conversion of a what looks to be something like a sixty or seventy thousand person stadium into a certainly not a sixty or seventy thousand swimming stadium, but 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 a but a but a ten to fifteen thousand uh, person uh, swimming structure with temporary pool builds. So the technology of today's day of today's day really enables us to drop in a pool anywhere at, at the highest level of competition to bring to bring aquatic sport right right to the door of any city in, in the U.S. or in our market. So really exciting technology, which which is uh, which is allowing us access to to venues that we wouldn't otherwise be able to be in. Yeah, Lucas Oil Stadium again, super exciting. Uh, super exciting to be there. I was I was there just recently. We did a World Cup swimming leg in Indianapolis, and I toured the the Lucas Oil Stadium and had a first look at where this the, the pool structure would be. And I just saw some drawings, and yeah, I mean it's excellent. I mean you can't you can't go wrong. I mean NFL stadium and and trials like that. I mean that's that's just first class. What's one thing about your job people don't know about that may surprise them? I'm usually never stumped for words, and I am. You've got me. How few full-time staff we have. Really? People think of it as International Federation, thousands of employees catering to everything? I, I think we have the hardest working staff of any International Federation in the movement. I think we're probably understaffed by about 30 to 40%. I think this team, every individual in this building probably works for two and a half people. And I don't think people appreciate how hard and understand how hard the team in this building work to service aquatic sport globally. And I wish I only had budget to hire 30% more people to give my staff a little bit of a break that they deserve. But I think if people saw how hard they work, they'd be surprised knowing that, that the, that the team here really, you know, eats, breathes and sleeps aquatic sport and, and does it at a pace that um, amazes me. One last question for you, Brent. How much did growing up in the metropolis of Buffalo, New York, prepare you for life in Lausanne, Switzerland, especially when it comes to the weather? I mean, fast back about myself, I've lived here for 10 years. So I've been uh, I've been acclimatized for a while now. Look, I think Buffalo is a it's a, it's it's an amazing place. I mean, it's a special place. And really, if, if you didn't grow up there, if you haven't lived a substantial period of time there, you never really quite appreciate the, the quality uh, of the life that you've experienced. 
that you would have you would have garnered by by being being raised there or lived there. You know, there really is. We talk a lot about team, and, and I think Buffalo. There's really a sense of being a team. I mean, you really do rely on everybody. I mean, it's not a it's not a wealthy city. You know, it's it's not a it's 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 a grinding city. You know, we're we're blue collar for a reason. You know, we outwork anybody. We may not be smarter than you. We may not have more money than you, but we're going to outwork you. And I think that's the mentality of many Buffalonians. And I think that's really kind of what what has enabled me to come here and say, look, I'm I may not know I may not know as much as you. You know, I may not I may not have been an Olympian myself, but I'm going to outwork you. And I think that's really what it's been able to teach me is coming into this market has been able to just really have a sense of work ethic and, and been able to roll up my sleeves and put in the extra hours when I've been tired and, you know, and and, and make sure that I, I reviewed that document one more time and, and made sure I made that one more call before I went home. I mean, it's the mentality of having to wake up at five in the morning and shovel your car out of snow. Um, it's, 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 it's the mentality of having to help your neighbor. I gave this example once, and I think it's probably the best example of, of people from Buffalo and, and a skill. It's not a skill. It's just a, it's a mentality that I think you, you obtain growing up in that city that's transferable to people or commonality amongst people from Buffalo, um, that you find in the world and how I think it sets, it separates people from Buffalo from other people in the world. And here, and here's my example. It's, it's my analogy example. You can couch it however you want, but, but here's what it is. How many times in, in the winter have you, you've woken up to a snowstorm or come home from work to a snowstorm and you barely get your car in the driveway and you've got your clothes on and you, and you walk in your house and you're wet up to your knees and you put your snow stuff on and you go in your garage and you get your snowblower out. And after you painstakingly snow plow, plow your driveway, you get done. And as easy as it would be to put your snowblower back in your driveway or back in your garage and go in, you say, you know what? I'm going to hit the sidewalk. And then you snowblow the sidewalk. And then you get to your neighbor's driveway and you realize he hasn't gotten home from work yet. And you say, you know what? I'm going to do him a solid. I'm going to hit his driveway for him. And you do it. And because, you know, because, because it's the right thing to do, it's that mentality of just going a little bit further and being a good neighbor and helping him out. I think that's something that that analogy is kind of always how I've always looked at my job is I could go home now, but I could always just, do one more thing and help someone else out and, and kill that sidewalk. And I could get to the end of that sidewalk and I know I'm tired and I want to go home. But if I just do this, it can really make your day that much easier. And I'll just kill your driveway right now too. And then I'll go home and I'll feel good and you'll feel good. And then tomorrow's a new day. And I think that sort of logic, and I can visualize myself doing that over and over as a kid, shoveling my driveway, then looking at the sidewalk and saying, okay, I'll do the sidewalk and I'll clear my neighbors, you know, I think that growing up is reflective in the work that we do and I do now, which is, okay, I want to go home, but let's do one more, one more sidewalk, one more driveway. Is it hard to follow the bills from Switzerland? <laughs> Not when they're winning. It's only painful. When they're losing. Brent, I appreciate you taking your time. Talk Buffalo and World Aquatics. And thank you very much for joining us on the Sports Travel Podcast today. Matt, it's my pleasure, and uh, thanks for taking me down a bit memory lane here in Buffalo, and I'm glad I got to share a little bit with your listeners and your, your, your readers on all things aquatic sport. This has been another edition of the Sports Travel Podcast. 
Thanks for listening and be sure to subscribe to our podcast and all your favorite platforms, including iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Past episodes are also available at sportstravelmagazine.com, which features breaking news and in-depth features on stories related to the sports event industry. Be sure to visit us daily at sportstravelmagazine.com, at Sports Travel on Twitter and Instagram, and at Sports Travel Magazine on Facebook and LinkedIn. Until then, this is Matt Trial for Sports Travel, and thanks for listening.